before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rachel Capital Podcast. Uh, this is a weekly 15-minute long podcast and the clock starts now. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager here at Rangeley Capital, and with me as always is my co-host and the founder of Rangeley Capital, Chris Muth. It is Friday, December 4th. Today we're going to start by talking about our article of the week, and then we're going to move in, into talking about a stock pick of the week. Uh, the article of the week is a is called How David Beats Goliath. It's an article from May 2009 in the New Yorker by Malcolm Gladwell. And then our stock pick of the week is a David versus Goliath investment example where individual investors can use their size to take advantage of institutional investors. So with that, Chris, why don't you kick us off? What do you think about how David beats Goliath? This is one of my all-time favorite articles. I love Malcolm Gladwell. I think this is one of his best things he's written. Um, And I really uh, was very attached to the story of the basketball coach, especially. Uh, I love uh, sports stories of kind of cultural biases that things are done because uh, it's it's what's done, and why does somebody come in uh, and uh, not horribly violate the spirits of the rules while staying within the letter of the rules? Well, because it's just not done. Yeah. It's just not done has always been one of my favorite phrases, and I could uh, live a happy life doing uh, only things that are just not done. Absolutely, and I think a lot of the po- topics we talk on the podcast about are things that are just not done. For example, uh, you know, people just don't. Or I guess everyone buys diamonds for their fiance, and we talked about how kind of diamonds are bullshit. I think it was our first or second podcast. So, absolutely. But so there's tons of stuff in here. Obviously, the girls incredibly successful, far beyond their skill. I love the lines: effort and trumpability, substitute effort for ability. But uh, kind of the first question I had for you. Uh, so Rick Pitino is mentioned in the article. Mm-hmm. He is a coach who has great success at college, but his skill set. He was a pretty poor, he had a pretty poor record when he went to the NBA. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vivek, actually, he he was the coach of this team. He bought an NBA team. To date, his ownership's been pretty poor. Do you think there's anything that prevents David strategies from succeeding at the absolute tippy-top levels? Yes. I think that advantage players, and that's really what we're talking yeah. about here, can use uh, advantage play uh, uh, best in a smaller, less picked-over environments, yep. as you're promoted towards the elite, elites tend to be convergent. You can see that statistically in almost every sport, certainly every speed sport that I know of. Uh, the differences go from hours to minutes yep. to seconds to fraction of a second, which is why at very elite levels the equipment becomes a sensitive, even that shaves off seconds out of an hour. Um, and uh, so a lot of the kind of quirky advantage play uh, works less and less well. You don't have trick plays work in the NFL that much. Yeah, uh, and, and I think, as you're saying, you don't have trick plays work in the NFL. They might work in pop order because the players are less trained. They're they don't pay as much attention. And in investing, I think we see the same thing. You know, when you are running a much smaller amount of money, you can uh, you can have a dramatically different portfolio. But you know, Warren Buffett has said famously, if he was running a million dollars, he could do fifty percent a year. He's running two hundred billion dollars. He of has to do what the market does at this point. But we'll kind of get to some more investing talks uh, later on. Go ahead. I, I think that uh, if we're interested in uh, behavior econo- behavioral economics, that behavior gets fairly optimized at elite levels. That almost defines the elite. Yeah. And so if you have tricks to exploit behavioral weaknesses, that is a 
wonderful advantage, but it dissipates when you get to the top of the pyramid. Exactly. And in many ways, David versus Goliath strategies are taking advantage of people who are using a Goliath strategy, but don't kind of have Goliath-level skills. I kind of like that. Uh, so there's another line in there where Vex says, you know, his business is based on going from kind of batch to real time. And one of his suggestions is, let's, uh, instead of having the Fed batch, let's have the Fed go real time. And I don't really have views one way or another on real time, that on real time in the Fed, but do you think that in today's study, there's almost too much of a move towards real time, and there's an advantage for people who are willing to go slower, think deeply on things, and then try to, I'm thinking investing, try to use their deep thought, but I think there's a lot of other places. Uh, yes, I think in investing, in the case of the Fed, I think you also have a role in public policy of going very slow in ways that are uh, both slow and transparent so that uh, uh, they're closer to the rep than the player and that the world can act more and more dynamically where the raft is more and more static. Uh, so it, for people who are kind of dynamists who believe in the dynamic future, having a kind of slow and stodgy public policy in central banking can actually be a very good thing. Yep, yep. Uh, I, I think that transitions well to the end of the article. They talk a little bit about how kind of Goliath pushes back socially. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it was the, the Goliath team brings their own raft, plays on their home court, and kind of stamps out and stamps out the David. And I, I can also see Goliath players in the real world pushing back on kind of Davids, where the example that comes to mind is the taxi industry has pushed back very strongly against Uber, and they don't do it by trying to beat Uber at customer satisfaction. They do it through regulations and trying to point out and make Uber illegal. Incumbents and rent seekers are great at protecting their rents. Uh, whenever you have uh, invisible, diffused uh, cost payers yep. and visible, concentrated beneficiaries, uh, those beneficiaries, the easy way to think about it is they can afford a lobbyist. Uh, if you're getting a sugar subsidy, you can't afford a lobbyist for paying a sugar subsidy, uh, even though that's one of the most regressive uh, things in all of public policy. Um, you know, these incumbents, they don't just fight you. They actually redefine the rules and the culture. Uh, incumbent uh, managements, for example, uh, when they are pushing back against plucky shareholders, uh, call things that were not uh, solicited hostile. Yep. What could be less hostile than an unsolicited bid for somebody trying to pay you more than your shares are working in the public market? Why is that the word? Well, it's hostile from the perspective of the incumbents because they want to stay the incumbents because they want to keep collecting rents. Uh, and uh, so that they really start to control the culture as well as the rules. So just to define a hostile bid for our listeners, a, a lot of times a, a stock will be trading at $25 per share and another corporation will come and ask management, hey, we'd like to pay you $35 per share and we'll buy all your shares. And management says, oh no, we, you know, management will often be fired when that the company is taken over. They say, no, we don't want that. So the uh, acquiring corporation will go hostile and offer directly to shareholders, we'll buy your shares for $35. And management seems hate that because they lose their job. And in some cases, the people who encouraged this weren't just hostile, but they were vultures. Yeah, they were hostile vultures. It's such great terminology. Uh, I think another great example is there was a there's the penny blocking industry, and 
there's a video of the penny lobby who he goes in front of uh, Congress and he says, listen, if you shut down the penny, just like, don't think about the penny. Think about the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Think about how many people give pennies to the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Like, it, it'll be destroyed if you shut this down. I, I worked at one point for the most junior, uh, newest uh, United States senator, actually. I believe he, I don't know if he's the only, but he was the, uh, 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 at the time, only uh, Arabic uh, senator we've ever had. Uh, and uh, I wrote legislation to abolish the penny. And I can tell you, it didn't get far. <laughs> it's a great example. But of, if you want the law, I've written the law for it, actually. Uh, and so I think I know your thoughts. But one of the one of the great things in the one of the great pieces I liked in there was there's this computer called Risco, and it goes to this military game convention and just. Instead of following all the typical naval fleet battles, it uh, it buys all these little cheap ships and just destroys the the convention. Uh, how do you feel about just kind of unconventional strategies breaking the not breaking the rules but taking advantage of the rules like that? Uh, I don't know what else you're supposed to do because <laughs> that's uh, uh, just absorbs all of my attention. Uh, you, you get used to bad reactions. Uh, people usually come back and say, "Well, you weren't supposed to do that." Uh, and there's kind of this unspoken assumption that you were supposed to uh, uh, supposed to follow the spirit of the rules in addition to the letter. Uh, but that unspoken assumption is generally uh, held by people who it is the default that they win and you lose. Yep, yep. Just, uh, just so everyone on here knows, once a week, Chris will come to me and I'll say, Andrew, have you bought a can of tuna in the past seven and a half years? I'll say, yeah. I think I bought a can of tuna. There is this great class action settlement, and you are getting twenty dollars back, my friend. And uh, no purchase necessary. Competitions. I think we'll have something to say on those at some point. Chris is smiling a lot. One of my big uh, marital uh, disputes is always what the <laughs> right uh, exchange rate is between uh, getting the in kind and the cash. And so, do you want fifty dollars of tuna or twenty five dollars of cash? And we usually kind of go our separate ways on, on that. So I we usually, I, I got the tuna, she got the cash. <laughs> I will. I uh, I feel for Elizabeth constantly. But uh, before we go to our Dave vs. Goliath stock investing, a quick request: if you like our podcast, please uh, subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. If you already subscribed, please recommend it to a friend. If you don't think it's worth recommending, uh, please reach out to Chris or me with feedback on how we can improve in any way. We also tried to upgrade our sound equipment uh, this week, so if you got feedback on that, we appreciate it as well. Uh, so let's turn to our David vs. Goliath stock investment. It is the Dyat Shire merger arbitrage. There is a CVR associated with it, which is kind of the David vs. Goliath. But Chris, why don't you kind of take over with a, a little bit of overview of the merger? Uh, very good. So this is a uh, buyer, a well-known to the arbitrage community, because uh, it was the uh, uh, party that broke out of the deal uh, with Abvi uh, a year ago or so. Uh, the uh, target is getting offered a combination of cash and CBR, contingent value right, yep. uh, that is good for a certain amount of value, as little as zero, as much as... Uh, uh, significantly more than that. And uh, for the last few weeks, it's actually been trading at a big spread, substantially less than the cash value yep. uh, in the deal. Uh, we uh, happily uh, own a significant amount of the company. Uh, and so it has uh, been good news for us that it just got a unexpectedly quick resolution of the antitrust review, meaning that the deal risk at this point is now very 
small. The deal can break, it's not closed yet, but it probably won't. So let me uh, jump in there real quick. So just the Shotters buying this company, mm -hmm. and as Chris said, they were undergoing, they, they were waiting for antitrust clearance. And the issue was Shire has kind of the leading HAE franchise, mm -hmm. and Diax has the best kind of next generation HAE franchise. Mm -hmm. So the issue was if you have the best and you're buying the, the next best, is that anti-competitive? And the answer most people thought was going to be, yes, it is. This deserves a full review. Uh, so the shares traded, there's a, the cash component is called 37. Shares were trading at 33. And once the antitrust clearance was given, shares have traded up to 37. But here's another interesting thing about it. I actually, uh, talking with uh, uh, some people uh, familiar with the situation, uh, said the following. Um, this is a complicated antitrust issue. Yep. The reviews are not public, but the early terminations are. Yep. So it turns out there's actually another investigation into a similar area. So it was a big issue. They just already had done it, and they yep. concluded that it was okay. And so this one dropped in their lap, and it was already done. And it just wasn't public that they reviewed the whole thing. And so at this point, they had very little to review. They didn't even need the full 30 days. It's incredible. So let's turn to the CBR. So Shire's buying uh, Diax for $37, we'll call it, plus a CBR. And the CBR, I would call it $37.30. It, it, it is exactly $37.30. Chris will not let me get off on the round. But so uh, the CBR is a contingent value, right? And what it is, is if Diax's phase three drug is approved by the FDA, they will pay out $4 per share additionally. And that would probably be in 2017 or 2018. And Chris, why does a company offer a CBR? The negotiating dynamics normally go like this. If we're trying to work something out, uh, there is the substantive work of deciding if we want to get to a deal. But there's also a huge number of procedural hurdles. Our uh, advisors, both on the legal and financial side, are trying to justify their high fees and look smart and important. So things can kind of get very adversarial, even more adversarial with the advisors sometimes than with the managers. So in order to be able to continue progress on the parts of the uncontroversial deal that has a lot of work to do, very frequently in these conversations, uh, they'll say, well, what is the high end and what is the low end? Before we get to the probabilistic distribution, how good could it be, how bad it could it be? That allows everybody else to continue. So CVRs are often a negotiating ploy. They usually, and until a few years ago, almost always re resulted in people splitting the difference, moving the cash and moving on. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they require separate registration in some cases. Yeah. Um, and the markets tend to discount them very deeply. Um, so they have certain very interesting advantages in my mind. Uh, but it's often a negotiating ploy, but that allows you to reach the market. Uh, and then, if interested, I can kind of mention a few of the pluses and minuses. Well, uh, I think we're running out of time. So why don't okay. we, instead of going through the pluses and minuses, why don't we say, this is a non-tradable CBR, yep. which means that once the merger closes, whoever owns the CBR kind of has to own it until you know it doesn't pay anything or it doesn't pay anything. Right. So it's a non-traded CBR, and why don't we talk about why we think CBRs are so attractive for individual investors and mm -hmm. why pros do not want to invest in CBRs. Well, uh, it's good that you combine those two questions like that because it's one and the same answer, mm -hmm. which is on one side, the Goliaths uh, are very good at uh, staying Goliaths. I mean, yes. that's the primary task of your Goliath. Uh, if you are a large uh, mutual fund manager, if you're a index fund manager, sure, uh, you uh, do nothing uh, uh, 
without considering whether you're going to keep your job yeah. uh, and follow the rules and stay out of jail. Uh, and so if something is outside of your mandate, if your mandate is to own S&P 500 equities, uh, that excludes merger securities. So these merger securities have either no or actually possibly negative value yeah. to you. You'd have to account for it. You'd have to explain why you were breaking the rules. If it's a non-tradable security, you're going to have to value it every quarter. You yes. have to hire auditors and valuation experts to value this tiny little security that has no impact on your overall. It, it actually does have negative value. It, and, and these are frequently people also who uh, don't have a principal orientation either because they don't have a significant percentage of their index fund or or they don't have an incentive fee to uh, own some of the upside. Um, so they're going to follow the rules. Uh, frequently, not only do they have to sell these, they frequently have to sell on a specific trade, yeah. right? On the close trade, oh, right before day. or after the close, frequently the last day of the offer. Uh, so you can uh, uh, have just massive, 100% time sensitive, 100% price insensitive counterparty who's just dumping this on the market. Right. And there's really nobody whose job it is to buy them. Exactly. So what we're saying is the this cash component is thirty-seven thirty, and right now these shares are trading for a little bit above thirty-seven thirty. A few pennies. So pe people are effectively valuing the CBR, which has a chance of paying out four dollars at maybe ten cents. We'll call it. Uh, you could read the fairness opinion, and they, the fairness opinion suggests it's worth two dollars and eighty cents. So we're we're trying to explain why there's this difference in value. We're, we're, we're skeptics and debunkers. Uh, frequently, we're skeptics and debunkers about certainty. When somebody says, I know something's going to happen in the future, uh, that I'm almost certain this will be okay, I think you and I often look at that and say, well, there's, there's a spectrum of things that could happen. Let's look at it actuarially as opposed to uh, bravely. Well, this is a uh, security that's actually expressing almost perfect certainty that it's worthless. Yeah. Uh, we don't know that it is not, but we just don't know uh, one way or the other. So Chris, I, we're very short on time, so okay. I'm going to say something and then I want you to just Please. talk. So you said it, the market's value is worthless, and I would propose also that to many analysts at a fund, it is worthless to them. To them. Because if they make this investment, uh, the investment does not pay off for two or three years, mm -hmm. uh, that means that it, analysts are paid on bonuses, that means they can't get a payout for two to three years. If you're an analyst at a fund, you don't know if you will be at that fund to collect that bonus. You don't know if the fund will be open. Until then, you will have to, every quarter, you have to value it, deal with auditors, deal with the analyst. In many ways, because there's that much cost associated with it, a professional cannot look at this. Whereas an individual who can just say, I'll buy it in my personal account for 3730, get 3730 in cash a few months. And hey, if it pays out, then I'll make 10% on basically nothing. And if it doesn't, I didn't really lose anything. So I would propose it's worth more to individuals than analysts in that sense. Did you? Absolutely. I think that along with these narrow mandates, they also have an embedded game where their uh, embedded rationality, their individual rationality is such that, especially in early December, they're thinking about their bonus. As yes. soon as it's clear to them that this doesn't impact their bonus, they don't know why we're still talking about it three seconds later. And uh, if you have a principal orientation and a long-term time horizon, uh, you can exploit that. Yes, yeah, so again, never a recommendation to buy or sell, but certainly these are the type of things we find interesting, we like to do, and we think this is something very much worth looking at. Go ahead. Our only advice is that you think for yourself. That, that is always our advice, and it, it always discourages me when people don't. Uh, so we have run quite over time. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the extra three or four minutes. If you like this podcast, again, please be sure to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud or recommend it to a friend if you uh, already subscribed. If you're interested in learning more about DIACs in particular, 
I'll have a write-out coming up on Seeking Alpha. It'll post Monday morning, so it should be up right when this podcast is going up. You can read it on Seeking Alpha there. You can also follow Chris and me on Seeking Alpha to read all of our ideas. Thanks again for listening, and please join us next week.